As Sam said, we are glad to have each one of you here today for our Sunday morning worship period. If you're visiting with us, we're happy and always honored to have you and come back anytime that you can be here with us at McCoinsville. Appreciate Brother Jimmy's prayer this morning for those of our number that are sick and have health issues, and we pray that they can soon make improvements if possible. One day at a veterans hospital, there were three older veterans who ran out of stories about their own wartime experiences. So they started bragging about their ancestors. One of the older veterans said, my great-grandfather at age 13 was a drummer boy at the Battle of Shiloh. Another one of them said, My great-grandfather fought with Custer at the Battle of Little Bighorn. And the third one said, Well, I'm the only soldier in my family. But if my great-grandfather was alive today, He'd be the most famous man in the world. And the other two veterans very quickly spoke up and they said, Well, what did he do? And the old veteran said, Oh, not much, but he'd be 165 years old. You know, some war veterans have many wartime stories to tell. But there are others, like one man that I once knew, a member of the church. He had served in the Navy, and he survived the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. He was there. He was on one of the ships that was bombed. And he would not talk at all about that war experience. Because, you see, many of his friends had died in that attack on December 7th, 1941. And the memories were just too painful. Make no mistake about it. <clears throat> war is war. And it's no picnic. And speaking of picnics, here's a true story from history about some folks who went to a war to have a picnic. Now, this story is not for entertainment or just to kill time. There's a point to it, so stay with me. On a quiet Sunday afternoon, on July 21st, 1861, thousands of people in the city of Washington, D.C. rode horses and buggies about 30 miles southwest into Virginia for a picnic not far from a little town called Manassas Junction, 
and near a creek called Bull Run. The Civil War between the Union and the Confederacy had begun about three months earlier. And the first battle had been fought at Fort Sumter in Charleston, South Carolina. <clears throat> so on that July afternoon, these Washington folks made that trip into Virginia to watch their Union soldiers whip the Confederates and quickly bring to an end what they thought would be a very short war. So they found spots on the hillsides with a good view of the battlefield area. They spread out their blankets and got out their picnic lunches, thinking that they would eat and cheer from a distance like people do today at a football game. Picture on the screen is a photo of some of the Washington picnickers that day. And yes, they had cameras in 1861. One man described them as a throng of sightseers. They came in all manner of ways, some in stylish carriages, others in buggies, on horseback, and even on foot. <clears throat> It was Sunday afternoon and everybody seemed to have taken a general holiday. A newspaper reporter wrote this account. He said the spectators were all excited. And one lady with an opera glass was quite excited at the sound of a cannon firing. And she said, that is splendid. Oh my, is not that first rate? But it wasn't long before reality set in. And a real battle began between two armies with about 18,000 men on each side. There was the sound of a gunfire, cannon fire, the sound of blood, the screams of wounded and dying soldiers. And those Washington picnickers soon realized this was an old picnic. The Union soldiers that the picnickers had come to watch that day, expecting to see a quick, easy victory, those soldiers were untrained and not ready for battle. And the Confederates were more ready for a fight. So the Confederates pushed back the Union forces and their retreat turned into a panic as many of them dropped their guns and they literally ran from the battlefield and the Confederates pursued them. Those Washington picnickers suddenly realized that the battle they had planned to watch and enjoy from a distance was now coming right to them. So mothers grabbed their children, husbands called for their wives, and everybody ran for their wagons and buggies and jumped onto their horses. 
Some of the picnickers got caught up in the stampede of panicking Union soldiers, as the picture on the screen there is showing. One spectator, a congressman from New York, was caught by Confederate soldiers, was held as a prisoner of war for nearly six months. That battle became known as the First Battle of Bull Run. And it was a major Confederate victory. Now, when I taught the Civil War in school, that story was never, ever in the textbooks. But I was never tied to the textbook, and I would always tell it. And I always told my classes that this was the first and the last time during the four years of the Civil War that anybody went to a battle to have a picnic. And that's a true statement. But sadly, it's not true for the spiritual battle that we fight today. Because countless people today don't realize that there is a spiritual war going on all around us, and yes, in us. And you know people like that do today what those Washington spectators did back in 1861. They made preparations as if they're going to a picnic, then they find themselves right in the middle of a war. The Apostle Paul describes this spiritual battle with words that are probably familiar to many of us. In Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, Paul writes this. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness and heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. The sermon today is the second in the series that I'm preaching on the great and precious promises of God that should give us hope as Christians.
Last month on the first Sunday in January, I introduced this series with a sermon called God's Promises, the Anchor of Hope, which by now you may have forgotten all about. But in that sermon, I said that we were going to dig deep into these promises. Guess what? We're going to do that today. So don't expect fluff. Sermon title for today is God Promises We Can Defeat the Enemy. We Can Defeat the Enemy. That passage that we just read in Ephesians chapter 6 is a powerful passage. It's filled with truth and guidance for the battle that we face. In that passage, Paul's advice for us is to dress and equip ourselves for spiritual warfare instead of packing for a picnic. But the first fact that we need to realize today is that the Bible identifies the real and present enemy of our faith. We don't have to guess or wonder or speculate who it is. Our enemy is the devil otherwise known as Satan. Here are just a few of the many, many, many images that the world today has of Satan, who is often thought of as not much more than a cartoon character, a guy in a red suit with a pitchfork and horns. You see... The world as a whole does not take Satan seriously. And there may be people in the church today who don't take Satan seriously. Maybe you don't take Satan seriously. The Greek word for devil is diabolos. And that word shares a Greek shares a root with a Greek verb that means to split. And indeed, Satan is a splitter. Satan is a divider. He is a wedge driver. You know, Satan separated Adam and Eve from God in the Garden of Eden when he tempted Eve. And Satan wants to separate us today from God as well. According to a recent survey, here is what people who call themselves Christians believe about Satan. Now, you'll notice that I have the word Christians on the screen in quotation marks because the world is full of people who call themselves Christians. But that doesn't make them New Testament Christians. But here are the survey results. 40%, 4 out of 10 people, 
strongly agree with the idea that Satan is not a real being, but is just a symbol of evil. 40%. 20% said they somewhat agree with that idea. Only a minority and about 35% of the so-called Christians in this survey said that they believe that Satan is real. And the remaining people in the survey said they weren't sure what they believed about Satan. Didn't know. So at least 65% of these so-called Christians, that's the majority, refuse to believe in the existence of Satan. And don't you think that makes Satan so very happy? As we said, the world as a whole today does not take Satan seriously. And Satan is thrilled with the doubt and the skepticism about him, and he loves it when people laugh at the thought of him. Because as long as Satan isn't taken seriously, then he is free to work his evil behind the scenes. You see, Satan is very happy, very content to make our lives a big mess and keep his name out of it. But how can we fight and defeat the enemy if we don't know much about him? Well, thankfully, God is not content to let Satan do his evil work without exposing him and how he works. And he does that for us in his word. So this morning, let's first ask and answer a couple of very important questions about the origin of Satan. And we're going to use what the Bible tells us. Here's question number one. Is Satan deity like God? Now, if this was a Bible class and not a worship service, I'd ask for a show of hands on the answer to that question, either yes or no. And I suspect that we might have answers both ways. We won't do that this morning, but let's think seriously about this question because the answer matters greatly. The answer matters greatly. Now, deity is eternal. Deuteronomy 33 speaks about the eternal God. Psalms 102 describes God whose years will have no end. Revelation 1 verse 8 says that God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come. Deity is eternal. Deity is also omnipotent, or having unlimited power. 
Genesis 17 verse 1 refers to Almighty God. Job says of God in Job 42, I know that you can do everything. First verse in the Bible, Genesis 1 verse 1, shows us that God has the power to create from nothing. Deity is omnipotent. Deity is also omnipresent. We're being present everywhere at the same time. Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight. Jeremiah 23 says that God is near at hand, but also afar off, and that no one can hide from him. Deity is omnipresent. And deity is omniscient or all-knowing. Psalmist says in Psalms 139 verse 4, There is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Romans 11.33 says, How unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways past finding out. So we've established right here that deity, deity is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. Now, Satan, by comparison, does not have those three qualities. He's not any of those things. Satan is not omnipotent with unlimited power. 1 John 4 verse 4 says, He who is in you, that's God, is greater than he who is in the world, that's Satan. Satan is not omnipresent or present everywhere at the same time. According to Luke 4, verse 6, his position as God of this age was delivered to him. And if it was delivered to him, then he's not present everywhere. And Satan is not omniscient or all-knowing. If we know God's word sufficiently, and we use that knowledge to resist him. James 4 verse 7 says that he will flee from us. So Satan is not omnipotent, omnipresent, or omniscient. And therefore, Satan cannot be deity like God. That's an important point. That's an important point because if he's not deity, then he cannot be eternal like God. So therefore, Satan must be a created being. And that leads us then to question number two. Was Satan created by God as evil? Verse 
That's an important question. Genesis 1.31 says, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So that verse answers the question. Whatever else Satan may have been originally, he was good. God did not create Satan as an evil adversary. Instead, Satan became evil. There is textual evidence in the Bible that indicates that originally Satan was one of the angels who inhabited the heavenly realm. And that he, along with other angels, departed from a righteous state and rebelled against God. For example, 2 Peter 2 verse 4, Peter says that God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Jude, verse 6, says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So the only logical conclusion is that Satan is the leader of a group of rebellious angels expelled from heaven, to eventually spend eternity in hell. The prophet Isaiah was no doubt describing Satan in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 that Jaron read before the sermon. Here it is again. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the height of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, that's Hades, to the lowest depths of the pit. Satan's heart became proud. He was not content to worship God. He wanted to be worshipped. He was not content to bow before God's throne. He wanted to be on that throne. And that's why, that's why God hates pride and opposes it. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 that an elder in the church should not be a novice or a new convert, spiritually immature. He says, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. And so Satan gave in to pride. And as a result, God cast him out of heaven. 
Jesus was referring to that in Luke 10, verse 18, when he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You know, when lightning falls, the descent is quick and electric and crashes with thunder. The Apostle John was given a vision about Satan's fall in Revelation 12, and he said this, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So Satan was cast out of heaven. But Satan is not out of our lives. The Bible tells us that Satan is deceptive and destructive and active. He is the one who deceives the whole world and he does not work alone. But he has his co-workers. Yes, in high places. Revelation 12 verse 10 identifies him as the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night. Two verses later, the text says that the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. In 1 Peter 5 verse 8, Peter tells us to be sober, be vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. In John 10, verse 10, Jesus says that Satan comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. You see, Satan wants to steal our happiness. He wants to kill our joy and destroy our lives as God's children. The devil is the enemy of our God-given destiny and he longs to be the destroyer of our souls. And that's why we must not dismiss Satan, but we must take him seriously. The Bible clearly describes for us what Satan is. He's an arrogant, anti-God force of great cunning and power. You know, the Bible describes Satan in many different ways. Here's some of them. He's described as the devil, the serpent, the strong one, the lion, the accuser, the murderer, the god of this age, the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air, Beelzebub, and Belial. 
And Satan oversees a, a conglomeration of spiritual forces and principalities and powers and thrones and angels. We know what Satan accomplished in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. We know the war that Satan waged against Job. We know the way Satan battled with Jesus in the temptations in the wilderness. And Satan knows scripture because he tried to use it against Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, on the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, Satan said to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Look at it. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now Satan was quoting there from Psalms 91. Satan knows scripture. But Jesus knew that Satan was real, not some mythological image or imaginary symbol. When Jesus told his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, did he tell them to pray, deliver us from the unknown evil powers? No. He said, deliver us from the evil one. So here are two facts that we need to understand and remember today. First of all, our spiritual battle is real and it's serious. And secondly, Satan is real and it's dangerous. So you could say that's the bad news. That's the bad news. But this sermon series is about our hope in the promises of God. And it's not primarily about the bad news, but it's about the good news. So here's the good news based on God's promises. What God wants you and me to know and to be assured of is this. We can defeat the enemy. And why is that true? Why is that true? Why is it true that we can defeat Satan, our enemy? Well, there are two basic answers to that question. First of all, because God is greater and more powerful than Satan. And secondly, because Satan is already a defeated foe. Let's look at that second reason. Satan is a defeated foe. We've already seen and talked about the fact that Satan lost the battle in heaven, was thrown down to the earth, and he knows that his time is short. Paul gave us this promise in Romans 16, verse 20. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. 
In Colossians 2.15, Paul says, that having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, on the cross and through his resurrection, Jesus stripped Satan of victory. And you could say that Satan and his, his minions are being kept on a short leash until the final judgment. And on that day, Jesus will cast Satan into the lake of fire from which he will never return. One commentator summarized it this way. <clears throat> And this is, I think, very, very good and relevant to the times in which we are living right now. He says, evil will have its day and appear to have the sway, but God will have his say and ultimately win the day. Satan may be vicious, but he will not be victorious unless we allow him to be. So we ought to take great comfort in the fact that our enemy is a defeated foe and that our God is greater. The Bible offers us many promises that give us victory over our enemy, Satan. In 1 John 4, verse 4, that we already mentioned, the Apostle John reminds us, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Look at it. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. God is greater, and if we're his children, and we belong to him, then he is in us. In 2 Kings chapter 6, there's an account of the prophet Elisha and the spiritual forces of God that were on his side. And I've used this account before in a sermon. Actually, I based the whole sermon on this account. But I'm, I'm going to use it again right here because it, it, it fits with our subject today. The king of Syria was angry with the prophet Elisha. And he sent a massive army with horses and chariots to surround the city where Elisha was staying. So the next morning, Elisha's servant gets up and he, he looks out and he discovers that they were surrounded by all of these enemy forces. And he asked Elisha, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And Elisha said, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the servant's eyes in a miraculous way 
And when he looked out again, he saw a different scene. He saw that the mountains all around them were covered with horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. And God intervened and delivered Elisha. You see, when we're on the side of God, we are never outnumbered or overpowered. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That ought to be a very encouraging passage. Satan's powers are limited toward us. He cannot overpower us Now here's the key, four words, he cannot overpower us unless we let him, unless we let him. In Ephesians 6 that we already read from, Paul gives us six components of our spiritual armor and what it ought to consist of in our battle with Satan. Here they are. Number one, he says, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Now that refers to the truth of Scripture, as opposed to the lies of Satan, and also our personal commitment to God's truth. Number two, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. You know, that breastplate would cover the heart, It shields and protects other vital organs. It protects you against all of Satan's accusations and charges. Number three, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Satan will try to put stumbling blocks in our path, but in God's strength, we can walk forward We can move forward, obeying him, and advancing the gospel. Number four, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. When temptations come to us, and they will, our faith keeps us steadfast in following Christ. And as he said, we can withstand the fiery darts of Satan. Number five, take the helmet of salvation. You know, the helmet protects the head. That's the location of thought and the mind. When we have the knowledge of our salvation as God's children, we won't be moved by Satan's lies and deceptions. And number six, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You know, the sword of the Spirit is the only offensive weapon 
listed there in the armor of God. All the other parts are defensive. In Hebrews 4, verse 12, God's word is described as living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. You see, we can win the battle against Satan with the armor of God in place and in use. In James 4, verse 7 that we already mentioned, James tells us to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Our our job is to resist the devil not by relying on our own strength but by following and staying close to Christ, our Savior. In our song books is an old song that we don't sing very often. But here are the words to it. It's called a mighty fortress. The words were written back in 1529 by Martin Luther. And the words of the song say this. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Paul has given us our marching orders. As soldiers of Christ, we should put on the full armor of God and take our stand beside our commander. We should take seriously the opposition that we face. But as we do that, As we do that, let's also remember that if we follow and obey God and follow his word, God promises that our side will be victorious. But we can't be victorious in this battle with the enemy that we've talked about today if we don't first belong to Christ. Because... There is no victory, there is no salvation outside of Christ. Victory requires hearing the gospel of Christ preached. It requires believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It requires turning away from your past sins and repentance. It requires confessing the name of Christ and making him the Lord of your life. It requires being immersed in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. 
And then it requires living a new and a faithful life in Christ. And then you as a Christian can have that hope in God's promise that you can defeat the enemy that we face. If you're not a Christian today, a member of God's family, the church, or if there is public sin in your life that you need to confess in a public way, Christ invites you to respond to his invitation as together we stand and sing.